Okay, so we're going to jump into uh, this story and cap off this series, How to Neighbor. And we're looking at a conversation between Jesus and this lawyer. And when we think of a lawyer, we think of civil lawyer. We think of uh, a civil court. And, but this, that's not the kind of lawyer that this is. This lawyer word, it's actually law expert. And this lawyer is a law expert on religious law. He is a religious scholar. He uh, would have studied the entire Old Testament, known it like the back of his hand, probably better. And this guy comes to Jesus with a question. He's, Jesus is the teacher. He's coming in him with a question. He shows him respect by standing up to ask his question. But uh, it's really a question with a hidden intent. Uh, the question isn't because he really wants to respect Jesus and he really wants to learn from Jesus. The question is to trap Jesus. Uh, he, Luke tells us in verse uh, 25, he says, The lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That was his intent. And he asked Jesus a question about not how do you live life, but he says, how do you inherit life? It's really important to make that distinction. He doesn't ask a question about how should I live out my life day to day. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? And he asked this question because he's suspicious of Jesus. As a law expert, a religious law expert, he sees Jesus who's constantly welcoming people to his table and to his life and to eternal life with him who don't follow the law. He's welcoming prostitutes and sinners and thieves and all the people that society would have pushed out. Jesus welcomed to himself. And so this law expert, he's coming suspicious of Jesus, expecting Jesus to say, well, you inherit eternal life by just walking with me and that's all you have to do. And he's going to catch him. But what about the law? And Jesus, like any wise teacher who discerns that the question is really a hidden motive, asks him a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Puts the ball back in his court. What do you think the way to life is? And so the religious leader responds to Jesus with a pretty well-known answer at that time. All of the religious law experts would have answered with this answer. They had summarized the entire law of God uh, the Torah, the, the Old Testament, the 700 laws, so they didn't have to just keep reciting them all the time. They summarized it like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He says, these, here's just the two ways that you, you're to inherit eternal life, the law expert says. He says, you're to love God. But not just some superficial, fake, kind of attend church on Sunday love, but a love that is much bigger than that. He says you're to love God with your entire being. You're to love God with your entire heart, that your affections are consumed by God and your passions are directed towards God. You're to love him with your entire mind, that the best mental energy you have goes towards loving and obeying God. That The first thought on your mind when you wake up and the thought on your head when you lay your head down on your pillow at night, the thought when you're at work and with friends is how do I honor God? You're to love him with all of your physical strength, that our best energies are not to go towards how to make my family better, or my career better, or my life better, but how do I love God better? That's just the first one. Then he says the second one. He says you're to love your neighbor as yourself. To love others with the same love and self-care that you have for yourself. To care about your neighbor, about their well-being, their physical well-being, emotional well-being, relational well-being, their financial well-being, as much as you do your own. Not an ounce less. 
to meet the needs of your neighbor with all the joy, all the force, all the power with which you meet your own. The man answers. He says, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response is, you're right. That's it. You got it. You ace the test. Just go and do that. And the guy's confronted. He's like, well, I mean, because he throws out this idealistic answer. Well, this, that's the way you do it. You say, yeah, you're right. If you can do that. So anybody in this room, you know, if you're trying to approach God through your own efforts, this is all you have to do. Just love God perfectly every day of your life and love your neighbor perfectly every day of your life. Go and do it. Good luck. Jesus totally punks him, I would say. And uh, the guy, he feels it. And so trying to justify himself, he asked Jesus another question. There's a lot of questions here. He says, okay, Jesus, I got you. So who is my neighbor? Like, it can't be everyone. That would be impossible. He tries to whittle it down. Okay, just tell me the, the, the person that I have to be like this with. He, he says, what's the minimum standard of what I have to do to inherit eternal life and obey this command? You know, you and I, we do that with God. Okay, God, I know, but, I mean, what do I really have to do? Jesus, again, a wise teacher, he says, that's a great question. That reminds me of a story. He tells him a story. And in this story, we have a hero. And this hero does a really basic thing. He, may, he meets basic human needs through good deeds. It's what we call holistic ministry. It's physical needs, spiritual needs, medical needs, financial needs, practical needs. It's holistic care for another human being. This man asks, what's the minimum standard of God for each human being to live out their life before him. Well, Jesus says it's to look out there, to look at people who aren't like you, who don't like you, who maybe you don't like, and to love them with the same care, the same costliness, the same sacrificiality that you would your own self. And he says when people see a life like that, they'll need to hear the gospel because they'll be like, how do I make sense of this? What's wrong with this person? He says, give me the bare minimum of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, this is the core. The central thing of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is feeding, sheltering, protecting the weak, liberating the oppressed, and caring for our fellow man as we care for ourselves. That doesn't just mean the people who look needy, but it means all people because ultimately we all have deep, deep needs within us. Matthew 25, Jesus tells tells us a parable. On the last day, he said, the shepherd will have to gather all the sheep and all the goats together and he'll separate the sheep from the goats. You know, two white fluffy animals. He's got to distinguish which is what. And he puts the sheep over here and the goats over here. And the goats are people who say that they're Christ followers, but they're not actually. And and the sheep are people who actually do believe in Christ. And he says, you over here, you're not true sheep. You're not truly my followers. And they say, well, well, Jesus, we we thought we were. What do you mean we're not truly your followers? And he says, well, I was hungry, and you gave me no food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. And I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. And naked, and you didn't clothe me. And sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they, they responded, Jesus, well, when did we do that? 
I don't remember ever seeing you like that. Matthew 25, 45. As you did not do it to the least of one of these, you did not do it to me. Now we can look at that list and we can think just social work. This is just doing social good. If we go back to the list, you know, it's, it's uh, people who are physically hungry and physically thirsty and str- and it is all those things, but it's also people who are spiritually hungry and spiritually thirsty and they're a stranger to God and they're spiritually naked and exposed before him and they're in prison to the works of evil in this world. And God has called us to go to both the physical needs and the spiritual needs. Holistic ministry is what he's called us to. Matthew seven sixteen, Jesus says, by your fruit, by their fruit, you will know them. He's talking about his disciples. He says, you know, there's two trees. There's a tree here and a tree here, and it's time, it's the, it's a, it's the time of fruit to come. This tree has fruit, and this tree doesn't. It's mid-June. You'll know that you're my disciple if there's fruit on the tree of your life. What he's not saying is you can have life by doing all these things. What he's saying is you know that you have life if you do all these things. Make sense? It's a big distinction. You can't have life by doing all the right things. You'll never be able to. You can only have life from him. But the way you know you have the life from him is that your life bears fruit. And some of us, we've never actually received the life that Christ offers us. We need to take that step today. For some of us, we have, and our heart has grown cold, and we haven't encountered the life that he has for us in a long time. And we need to come to him again and say, Jesus, flood my heart with the mercy and the grace and the life that I once knew from you. If there's not fruit on the tree, it's because we're not walking with him. So that's the mandate that we love our neighbor as ourself. But you and I, just like the law expert, we try and limit that. And uh, there's a few ways that we limit that. We try and limit the who. You know, it's easy just to associate with people who are like us, people of our culture, people of our ethnicity, people of our socioeconomic status. So it's one thing to have a friend from a different ethnicity. It's another way to segregate yourself from other people is to, yeah, maybe you're different ethnicities, but you're, you only hang out with people of the same social class as you. So you won't hang out with someone who maybe has less than you or, or, or because, I mean, I just don't want to cross that barrier. I don't want to go over that line. I don't want to be noticed with that person. And, you know, we would never say that, but then when we're with our coworkers, they all have their nice cars and their beautiful, pretty, perfect friends. And we don't want to be associated with someone like that. Or it could be the political party. You only hang out with Republicans. Or you only like Democrats. Or you don't like any of them. But Christ has called us to a neighborly love that crosses every barrier, every boundary. That we're to be neighbors to people who not only aren't like us, but also who don't like us, who we don't like. That's the kind of neighborly love he's called us to. He says, watch out, because we'll get into this sort of segregation in all these various little ways. And the two people he puts in the story, there's only two categories of people. They're Jewish people and they're Samaritans. These two people groups hated each other. The the, the Jewish individuals, the Samaritan individuals, they related to their larger social group, and those social groups hated each other completely. And this Samaritan reaches across an enormous racial barrier in order to help. That's Jesus' way of warning us and saying, 
don't you dare limit this. Don't you dare limit the grace of God that I would pour out in someone's life because they're not like you. Don't you dare. This Samaritan would have been impressed, oppressed by this injured man. The, the injured man on the road would have been a man who oppressed this Samaritan man. And the Samaritan man, out of the mercy in his heart, still came to help him. It would have been totally right for him to say, I'm not going to help you. I'm going to run over you with my horse. And I'm going to back up and I'm going to run over you again. That's what he could have done. It's what most of us would say he should have done if we understand the cultural context. But he didn't. He gets off his horse and he helps. We limit the who and we limit the how much. We say, you know, that's nice and all, but, you know, I work 80 plus hours a week. I don't have the time for this. Or, you know, I just don't have that much money. I don't have the, I don't have the finances to do that. I mean, this Samaritan, he gives two denarii. Two denarii is two days wages. That's a lot of money. Not only that, he doesn't just open his wallet and give out a couple hundred bucks, but in addition to that, he takes him to the inn, and he says to the innkeeper, hey, whatever, whatever it costs to get this man well, you put that on my bill, I'll take care of it. doesn't say the Samaritan was a rich man, but somehow he had, he had allotted space in his financial world to be able to care for someone when an opportunity came across his path. Somehow he had done that. But we limit the how much. We say, you know, if I, if I just had a different life or a different financial situation, then I could help. Jesus says, no, no, no. Being a good neighbor is a call to all of us no matter what our situation. And there may be limits and restrictions on that, but we need to be faithful with what he's given us. Jesus puts this story on a stretch of road that everyone knew about. He didn't put them on just a generic. He didn't say they were on the road. No, no. He said they were on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a stretch of road everyone in that cultural context would have known about. And on this stretch of road was a windy, twisty, hilly stretch of road with a lot of caves on it. And there's actually uh, a part on that road called the Bloody Pass. It's called the Bloody Pass because people get jumped there. Because thieves hide in the caves, and it's around a turn, and they jump out, and they jump people. They rob them. They don't just rob them of what they have on them. They take their clothes off because clothes... Uh, were pretty expensive in that culture, and so they steal their clothes. They beat them, and they leave them for dead. And if you're curious, you know, why did the priest and the Levite just pass by? It's because they're smart. What do you, when you see someone who's beaten up, and it's the, the blood is still fresh, what does that mean? The thieves are still close. When you drive through a bad part of town, and you see someone who maybe needs a little bit of help, and you're like, I'm just going to keep my foot on the gas pedal. That's what's going on here. And not only that, I mean, we're hard on this priest, but, you know, because we have this vision of him just like stepping over this bleeding man on his way to Starbucks. That's not what he's doing. Actually, the priest was returning from Jerusalem where he had purified himself so he could perform his religious duties, which one of which was caring for the poor and needy. And according to Jewish law, if you touched a man who had died after you had been purified, then you're unclean again and you have to go back to Jerusalem and you have to go through the purification rituals, which could take up to seven days. I mean, to stop and help this man, especially if this man dies, would have been incredibly inconvenient. It would have cost him a lot of money and it could have cost him his life. So, I mean, we put it in that perspective. You can sympathize a little bit with the priest. And then the Levite, he's just a a junior varsity priest, you know, so he's just following his leader. When the Samaritan stops, it's the same for him, though. He's risking everything. What's the difference? It's the mercy in his heart. 
You know, I've, I've been super convicted recently. We as a leadership team have been just working through that acronym BLESS. And every Wednesday morning we get together as a team, we ask each other, you know, hey, who'd you bless this week? You know, we talked about it last week. B is begin with prayer and L is listen and E is eat. And the two S's, can't spell BLESS without S's, you know. And so the two S's, serve and story. I know it's so corny, but it's really helpful when you apply it. And so we've just been asking, who'd you pray for? Who'd you listen to? Who'd you eat with? Who'd you serve? Who did you share the story of what God has done in your life? With I've been so convicted because my life often has no margin, financial margin or time margin. And I've been so convicted because I'm seeing all these opportunities that a few months ago I was just missing because I was in such a hurry. And I, just, I wonder what it would be like if we spent our life asking the question, how can I bless, how can I serve, how can I listen, how can I pray, how can I story? Instead of asking just like, what's the least that I can do? I mean, you guys probably don't do this, but, uh, you know, me. Sometimes someone gets sick or they have a baby or they're in the hospital or there's a, a birthday that comes up. And what the question that comes to mind is not, how can I be so generous with this person that they experience the grace of God through my generosity? That's not the question I ask. The question I ask is, what's the least I can do to where they don't think less of me? Now, I know you guys don't ask that question better than me. But what if we spent our life at every turn with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family, asking the question, how can I display the grace of God to them, the generosity of God to them, in such a way that, that they have to ask the question, why are you doing this? How can I do it far beyond what they could ever expect of me? How would that change your neighboring how would that change your relationship with your neighbors, especially the ones that you've got some tension with? Especially the ones that, it's just like, there's been some rubs in the past, you know? Like their dogs never stop barking. Or like they always park in your spot. Or the coworker who is always gossiping and saying some things about you that really aren't that nice. Or is always doing things in such a way to pit themselves as the better person and you as how would it change things if you thought to yourself and you came to God and said, God, how can I bless this person the way that you have blessed me? Because, you know, if we just only want people who deserve it to be blessed, Jesus could have saved a trip because we didn't deserve it. For many of us, this won't be easy because we've lived a life where there's no margin. But God's calling us to love our neighbors as Christ has loved us. So here's the question. How do you get people to live like this? Because nobody lives like this. Nobody. Even the most civil-minded people don't live like this. Not holistically loving God with all they have and loving their neighbor as theirs. No one does. How do you get the motivation to live like this when no one's looking? Because, you know, the priest and the Levite, this was their job to care for people. But they didn't. Because they were, they were on a road. No one was looking. No one would know. It was going to cost them a lot. How do you get the motive where it's deep within you that you actually want to when the opportunity comes? A lot of uh, people try and be motivated by guilt. That's how a lot of motivation works, whether it's secular guilt or religious guilt. Most people will say, yeah, you should be a good person to other people. This isn't a new idea. Secular guilt says if you're a good person, a civil-minded person, if you're a good citizen in society, then you'll do good to 
others, but it doesn't work beyond what other people can see. Definitely not when it costs you. Religious guilt just says, well, if you really love God, then you'll treat people a certain way. If you have opportunity, then be a good person. It only works to a certain point. The priests and the Levite were the most religious people in society. They didn't have the heart. You know what Jesus does in this parable? He pits the law expert in a place in the story that causes him to ask the question. He gives him a dynamic that's different than one he had ever seen before. He doesn't give him a how-to. He doesn't give him a go and do it. You know, we're addicted to the pragmatics of what do I need to do, how-to. I mean, it's the whole the series, how-to, be a good neighbor. But he doesn't give him a how-to. He gives him a dynamic. He could have put him in the story as the hero. There was a Jewish man who was riding on his horse and he came across a Samaritan man who was on the side of the road. The Samaritan man, he had been robbed and beaten and bloody and he was going to die. But the Jewish man got off of his horse and he saved the Samaritan man. Now you go and do likewise. But that's not what he did. Not what he did at all. No, no, he says there was a Samaritan man. The man that the Jewish men would have hated. (laughs) There was a Samaritan man riding on his horse and there's a Jewish man in the road. And this man had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And he's bleeding out on the side of the road. And the Samaritan gets off his horse. He's posing a question to this law expert. He says, if you were in the side of the road, left for dead, and the only thing that could save your life is a radical act of free grace from someone that you wouldn't expect it from. From someone who looks at you and says, he doesn't deserve it but shows you a radical act of free grace. If that was your only option for life, would you want it? And of course, you know, when Jesus asked him, well, who was the good neighbor? The man, you know, stuttering over his own words. The one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. Jesus gives him a dynamic to see life through. And for those of us who are Christ followers, we know that Jesus is the great Samaritan. Jesus is the one who got off of his horse in heaven and came down and lost his life for you and me to have life. He left heaven. He left the riches of heaven, the bounty of heaven, and he came down. And he didn't just risk his life on a road for us. He gave his life for us. He gave it freely as a gift to us that we might have life and life abundantly. A few practical things that we learn from this story. The Levite and the priest They were in vicinity, but they refused to do a few things. They didn't think about the man, and they didn't contact the man. They were walking along the road, and they saw the man, but they refused to really look at the man and think of the man's struggle and think about what might happen to that man. And they turned to the other side of the road, and they continued on their journey. They didn't look and think about the man. They didn't contact the man. If you and I are ever to be good neighbors, we have to Come to those who are suffering, who are in need, that maybe we can't even see their pain. We have to look and observe and pray and listen and then draw close. We eat with them and serve them and bless them. Martin Luther King Jr., when talking about this passage, said, the first question that the priest and Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? That's what the priest and the Levite asked, and that's why they didn't stop. What will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? How do you be a good neighbor? You ask the question, what will happen if I don't be a good neighbor? 
I want to ask you a question today. What does it look like for you to be a good neighbor? Not generally. I mean, we can learn from this story the general principles of what it means to be a good neighbor. But what does it look like in your situation, in your neighborhood, on your block, with your neighbors, with your coworkers? What does it look like to be a good neighbor as Christ has been a good neighbor to you? Practically, what does that look like? And I can't answer that question, not specifically. Only God can. And I want to give you a challenge with that. I want to give you the challenge of taking 15 minutes. 15 minutes. That's how it looks to you, I think. It looks like this to me. 15 minutes for the next 30 days, every day, and pray. Walk your workplace and pray, or walk your neighborhood and pray, and ask God, God, open my eyes to see the need in my neighborhood, to see the people in my neighborhood, and show me how to be a blessing to them. God may bring people to mind that you don't feel like blessing, but he's calling us to bless them. You know, my wife and I, we bought our house three years ago, and over the past three years, I have uh, swung and missed more times than I've hit the ball, trying to be a blessing to our neighborhood. I have... uh, had bad attitudes. I have, uh, you know, ducked and ran to my house after a long day of work. I don't want to talk to anybody. just want to get inside. Done all those things. And God has continually been gracious to me and showing me and giving me a love for our neighbors. And uh, the times that I've been able to lay my head on my pillow and sleep well at night have not been the times that I've done a big serving project and served the whole neighborhood and done all this big stuff everyone can see. As good as those things are, the times that I can lay my head on my pillow are the times that I slow down to listen. The times that my wife and I sit across the table from a couple in our neighborhood and watch their little boy run around our house chasing our dog and we just engage life with them or the times that our neighbors tell us they're moving to uh, an, uh, you know, a home where they can grow old and die together or the times where our neighbors tell us that they're sick and they need prayer. Those are the moments that I can lay my head on my pillow and say, God, thank you for sending us here. Thank you for allowing us to be a neighbor. Please help us to show radical neighbor love the way Christ has shown it to us. We don't do it well all the time. None of us will get an ace on this, but what we can do is we can humble ourselves before the mercy of God and say, Holy Spirit, help us, show us, teach us. We want to be neighbors, and that's all we can do. Today, you know, there's a lot of ways we can do this individually. We also do it corporately as a church. It's why we do things like the Christmas store every Christmas to help local schools and things like the free summer camp that Alyssa and a whole host of volunteers did this year and things like the care portal and, and so many other things, things like So Love that people at our lake location are doing every week and uh, hear stories from our pastor at the Washington location about how people are engaging and loving and serving their neighbors and that's why, you know, we have this benevolence fund that every year you guys give $50,000 plus to that we can serve and help with the needs in our neighborhood. And this is something we'll do corporately, but it's also something that God is giving to us to just do as individuals.